start uh, chapter four, starting with the first verse. Romans four. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as, a, as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose, transge whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. The word of the Lord. We have worked through some important material in our study of Romans. The first three chapters, we arrive at chapter 4 today. The first three chapters are, at the least, a grand introduction to the Christian gospel. They are grand, but also potentially troubling in spirit. We have phrases like the wrath of God, titles and descriptions. If we misunderstand this significant section on the wrath of God, then we can be... Uh, distracted to misunderstand the gospel. But all of the first three chapters are to get to chapter 3, verse 21, which we highlighted last week, the but now, which is the, the vision statement that should be for every Christian church. You just walk in and there on the wall, and you know, instead of some corporate-like sounding uh, mission statement, it should just say, but now. And everybody says, what does that mean? It means, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed in contrast to all the ways that we set up our lives as people. It reminds us that God is present and God is good and God is for us. That's chapter 3, verses 21. It goes to verse 31 in that description. And then chapter 4. So what of chapter 4? Abraham. Uh, talking about Abraham is partially because Paul, in many of the letters in the New Testament, is speaking to Jewish people or to Jewish people who have now identified as Christian. So the question is, is this chapter of any interest or use for us? Some of you would be pleased to know that there are biblical commentators who say, no, it's not of any interest to us. Isn't that, I mean, that itself is interesting. One commentator says, this is, I'm going to say the word again, this is of little interest and of no weight for us. It is, these are his words, remote and unenlightening. I guess we can go on to chapter 5 then. Except, trouble is, chapter 5 echoes 4, but anyway. I, and you already guessed this, uh, disagree. <laughs> it's easy to disagree when you follow someone like John Stott that people have called the Anglican Pope who says this is an enormously important chapter, and he says so for two, he identifies two key reasons. He says, firstly, this chapter clarifies the meaning of justification by faith. 
So we've heard we were taken to dizzying heights last week, this but now. And chapter 4 is going to say, okay, let's explain what's going on when we talk about this kind of salvation, justification by faith. And secondly, this chapter will show us the continuity of God's revelation and redemption. In other words, the distinction between Old and New Testament is at very many times a false distinction made in our own mind, but God is the same forever in all of Scripture and all of history. Very important point. Today, what I want to show you is that the way of God in redemption is unlike anything that we know in the world. Now, I'm convinced of this. I know it because I see it sometimes in your face. You think that, you know, this is baggage that the culture can bring. You know, we go to church and other people don't. We're religious and other people aren't, something like that. We need to kind of discard with some of those notions. As I said last week, in, in my case, I'm, I'm a minister, but I've never felt God called me to be religious. So it, that, that distinction isn't the one to me that matters. Here's the distinction. The message of the gospel, as outlined in Romans 3 and 4 and following, is unlike anything else that you will ever hear in the world. So you carry this with you and your understanding of everything, every interaction, everything at school, everything at work, every terrible deed you hear about, every great deed you hear about, is colored and altered by the fact that you see the world differently because you have heard and, if we're Christian, accepted a message that's unlike anything else on offer. So I'll explain. In in explaining, I'll take up uh, some of the work of, of Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, one of my favorite uh, preachers. Tim Keller says, says it this way. He, he has a term. I think it's his term. It's in a sermon I heard from him. He says, this is the way that you make sense of your life. And you make sense of your life by validating performance records. So you can write that down in your notes if you're writing. Validating performance records. This is, in the world, the manner of things. So let me outline it for you. You, can, you, you picture yourself applying for a job. And in doing so, you have to submit. Now, this is changing, actually. But, it, but still, in most places, you're applying for a job. You submit what? A resume. What's the resume? It's all the great things about you. Why they should hire you as opposed to somebody else. So you list there your work experience. That's probably the most pertinent thing. Maybe your academic record. You know, your hobbies and whatever else. And how much you love the Disney store and you can't wait to work there. That's your validating performance record. Here's my education. Here's why I'm qualified. Here's why I'm worthy. You want to enter a program to obtain an advanced degree. So a master's degree or a doctorate. And you submit what? You submit your academic record. Your transcripts, your grades from other courses. Here's what I've achieved. I note here that this whole system is based on competition. In many ways, the first question in this system is not whether you are worthy or not. Sometimes that matters. But what matters almost always and what often matters more is that you are more worthy than whoever else has submitted their validating performance record. That's the way the world works. And by the way, you and I, and this is not necessarily a Christian thing to do, you and I bring that ethos into this room. 
so that you look around and think, well, that person makes a lot of money or that person doesn't or that person. And we even can kind of categorize in this. The world works according to validating performance records. This is how many or most things work in the world. It is possible, I don't have this in my notes, but I'll just mention it, to just purchase these now. Some people have argued that there are school systems that are just purchasing of credentials, so you get to the next stage and the next stage and the next stage. So that it's not necessarily super important whether your validating performance record is actually true, but just that you have the letters. That's how much we've given into this way of the world. It is no surprise, Keller says, that it's no surprise that because of this system, every religion in every culture, when they think of God, thinks of God in these terms. That's it. Here. Pastor. Prayed the prayer when I was 13, 14. Read my devotional this morning. We present our spiritual resume. This is often our default understanding of how God will relate to us. And then comes chapter 3, verse 21. But now, what we are going to hear is, and these are Keller's words again, is an unheard of spirituality. We've never heard it anywhere else. It's an unheard of approach to God. And it's simply this. Now, I can say the statement, and you're just, you know, it's, a decent Sunday and whatever else the Academy Awards, Awards are on tonight. Some of you are going to watch the Academy Awards for whatever it is, 12 and a half hours. And you're going to say, church is boring. I condemn you for that statement. I mean, at the end of something like that, it tends to, the Super Bowl was kind of exciting this year, but at the end of watching something for that long, it, you just look, like, So I'm going to say something now. That, I mean, I don't have a red carpet and I didn't, you know, dressed in whatever, do the, you know. But this is, this should, in a sense, knock us out of our seats, what I'm about to say. This is an unheard of spirituality, an unheard of approach to God. Here's the statement. Perf- a perfect record comes as a divine gift. Here, God. perfect record comes as a divine gift. It is not just, and I struggle with this too, and and I'm a minister. I know many of you, or I'd say all of you struggle with this. I don't know anybody that doesn't. That it's not just that God gives me a perfect record in exchange for what I'm trying to impress Him with. It's that through Jesus Christ, this whole system of validating performance records is abolished. It is not enough to understand Jesus Christ simply as the one who has a perfect record. We get his record, we give him ours, and then we're kind of done with him. Do you see how that can work? We are alive spiritually because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And this system is abolished. That's what Jesus does. Now hear this. Maybe this statement will connect with you more because it's more personal than perfect record comes as a divine gift. When you understand that perfect record comes as a divine gift, this can be, maybe should be, but this can be the end of our struggle for worth and acceptability. It's over. So who are you trying to impress now? Me? 
by how religious or spiritual you are? Your boss? I mean, on, on the earthly level, we have goals and achievements and accomplishments. But this perfect record as divine gift is the end of our struggle for acceptability and worth. So I pose a question to you. Is there any other place apart from the Christian gospel where this is the way? Go ahead. We can finish now. There's nowhere else. In fact, I mentioned it a couple of moments ago. We are so immersed in this validating performance record culture that we inadvertently bring it into how we relate to one another in this room. We may have people who have struggled with whatever it is, various failures or difficulties in life, everything from addiction to whatever else, who sometimes feel that they are less because they haven't, life hasn't gone for them like it has for somebody else. You may have suffered loss that the person beside you hasn't suffered. Is there any other place apart from the Christian gospel where this is the way that it is? And that's Romans chapter 4. That's why we need it. Because the Jewish people and the early Christians struggled to understand this. So Paul says, after saying, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed, a perfect record given by God, he's going to take two of the biggest figures in all of the Old Testament, Abraham and David, and he's going to say, this is how it worked for them. Nobody thought that. The, the, The crazy part is that we should be better than back then because we're on this side of the cross. We should know it's not about achievement and religious acceptability and spiritual accomplishment and whatever else. But as they needed to be reminded then, we need to be reminded now. This is always the way that it has been, even for them. So verse 1, what shall we say then? What about Abraham? See how Paul does this. Our forefather. They would think of Abraham as their father in the faith. The understanding of Abraham that people in that in that religious culture would have had was that Abraham, all these many centuries ago, Abraham had earned God's favor because he did what God says and he was in doing so righteous. So who's righteous in this room? This person, this person, this person, because they fulfilled the accomplishments. That was their understanding. Paul points out verses 2 and 3 in front of you that Abraham may have done good works, but he couldn't boast At least he couldn't boast before God. So he might boast before me or before Bill or before saying, well, it's Abraham after all. I've done better than you have. He messed up too, by the way. There's lots of account of that in Scripture. But Paul says he certainly can boast. If he boasts before people, he certainly can't boast before God. So where does his righteousness come from then? If he can't do this to God. Abraham, God, I've fulfilled the things you asked me to do. And God takes the record and says, okay, Abraham, good. Paul says, that's not how it works. So how does it work, even for Abraham? Where did his righteousness come from? Look at verse 3. He believed. And God credited it to him as righteousness. What do you want? What else do you want? He prayed. 
Sure, he prayed. He committed his life to God. Sure, he did. But what made him righteous? He believed, and God credited, credited it to him as righteousness. And then Paul takes up David. Down to verse 6. It's the same thing for David, the other key, another key Old Testament figure. The great king, they would think. The one who shows us that the Messiah is coming. A king in the line of David. David asked the question, what does it mean for a person to be blessed by God? To be counted as righteous. And then Paul actually quotes words that David himself wrote. This is how David saw the world. You ready for it? Blessed are you when your transgressions are forgiven and your sins are covered. You are blessed because God does not count your sins against you. That's when you're declared righteous. That's when you're blessed. Not by your own doing. That's the way David saw the world. How could this be for David and for Abraham? Because they came in, you know, you got Old Testament, New Testament. They came in that division, that understanding of division. They came before Jesus, right? So how could it be that this was what faith was to them and righteousness? A very quick Christian theological moment. Um, Actually, just a Christian theological few seconds here. Ready for it? There is no before Jesus. There is no time before Jesus, before Christ. Before Abraham was, I am. Or in Revelation chapter 13, a reference to Jesus, referred to as the Lamb who was slain. Look it up in Revelation 13. The Lamb who was slain when? Before the foundation of the world. This is always the way that it has been. No validating performance record has worked. It's always God's doing. Your standing, your acceptability, your qualification, your merit, your worthiness in terms of Christian understanding come from God, not from self. Now, this is true for all other people as well in the Christian understanding. It's why we are never to have any sense that one is better than the other, that one is worth more than the other. This is Christian truth. We are all of us, every one of us, made in the image of God. That's creation. And the fall, right, sin, everything else. We prayed a a prayer of confession this morning. So we're made in the image of God. We sin. But we are remade, which is redeemed. And declared worthy by the love of God. By God crediting it to us as righteousness. We are made and we are remade. Not of our own doing. Redeemed. If you don't believe this, if you subscribe to the world as run by validating performance records, then you can do this. You ready? You can hate other people. Because they don't measure up in some way. Or they've done some terrible thing. I was curious um, this week that... And the the, uh, Coptic brand of Christianity is interesting... Uh, often present in Egypt, but not only in Egypt. And you know that ISIS, what was it, a couple weeks ago or last week, 
killed 21 Coptic Christians in Libya. It's a neighboring country. And the, the uh, head, the bishop, I suppose, of the Coptic church in the world was interviewed this week, and he talked about forgiving these people uh, from ISIS who had done this. He said it's a totally inhuman act. It's, it, it, it should be dealt with. There should be consequences, all the rest. But that because of his faith in God, he is to forgive even these people. Or they're just worthless, horrible criminals, thugs. I mean, personally, I think the whole Islam thing is overplayed. I think you've got a lot of discontent people who've found a place to, you know. You can hate others. You can hate others if you work according to validating performance records. You can treat people of other faiths as if they are less because they don't believe what you believe. They have a different record than you. Different backgrounds, different nationalities is lesser. Personally, you can take up all kinds of self-destructive behavior if you believe in the validating performance record way of the world because you can begin to see yourself often because of the pain that others have put on you or your own sense of self-doubt or whatever it might be. You can begin to believe that you are worthless, that you are less than somebody else, than anyone else or than everyone else. But, verse 23 this, it was credited to him as righteousness, is not just for Abraham, but it's for all of us. There's why chapter 4 matters. Abraham, or Abram, his name was changed later because of this faith. Abram believed, and God granted it to him as righteousness. And go all the way to verse 23. This is our memory verse for the day. All the way to verse 23, and it says, and this was not for him alone, but for all of us. I have to go even further and say that this acceptability and this worthiness and this love does not come when you accept Jesus. Evangelical Christian minister saying something like that. This comes not by my works, not even by my faith. It comes entirely from God. My acceptance of Jesus Christ saying, I put my trust in you is only the way in which I now can live in this and understand it, and it becomes real for me. Otherwise, I live according to the other way. And I'm judged according to the other way, I suppose, because that's what I've chosen. It's already there by His doing. And what accepting Jesus means is that you believe it, and you see it, and you live from it. This is justification by faith. So here's a little Old Testament lesson for you. And I knew it would be tilted, but that just makes it seem like it's in motion, so that's fine. <clears throat> These are God's promises to Abraham in the book of Genesis. First of all, God's promises are personal, as Abraham actually believes. I know you, God says, and I will be known by you. Abraham follows God. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will have offspring like the stars in the sky. Just try to count them. But Abram and Sarah don't even have one child and they're old. And so the next level of the promise is familial. It's about their family. A child is going to be born. But even then, how could this promise of all these multiple offspring come from this? Even then, Abram, you don't trust in the promise. You trust in me. And Abraham is asked to give up his child in one of the most wrenching stories of the Old Testament. One that I still, on an earthly level, can't understand. I understand the, the biblical 
thing of when Abraham is supposed to go and, and sacrifice his son. God provides the sacrifice instead. But you, Abram, Abraham, my promise is so secure to you that you are not even supposed to trust in the promise itself, the child. You are to trust in me. And Abraham does what? He believes. And God credits to him as righteousness. The promise goes from being familial to being national. I will make a people from you, a nation. And this we understand in Christian understanding and Jewish understanding as the nation of these Israelites, the slaves that come from Egypt. Down from, first from this land, then down to slavery in Egypt, then back to the promised land. But a nation who are given the Ten Commandments and are given these, given these ways to live. But the promise doesn't even end there for Abram, Abraham. I will through you bless all peoples on earth. In other words, you sitting here this morning will be blessed through Abram believing. Thanks be to God. Universal. Through, through this promise, people will know of my love. And we believe as Christians that Jesus Christ comes through the line of David all the way back to Abraham. This promise is universal. From Abraham and David to Jesus the one who was slain before the foundation of the earth. You see how this works? So there are two ways put before you. The first is, I, don't even, I almost don't have to describe this to you because I guarantee you that every single one of us, even if we trust in God, we're pulled back into this first way. Where we think that the way to make it in the world is to build a life for ourselves. To anticipate the terrible but work for the best for ourselves. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. Do you have enough money for your retirement? Now, those of you who answer yes, do you feel better than those who answer no? Those who answer no, do you feel scared? I mean, our world works according to that. Just turn on the TV and it'll scare the whatever out of you. Do you have enough for retirement? Have you had enough vacations? You know, stress causes sickness. You need more vacations. And if you're not having vacations, then... Are you making sure that you scare your kids enough that they get the right qualifications for a good life? Because you do have to scare them some. You have to tell them if they don't get those credentials, well, they're going to be losers. Build a life for yourself. Make the way. I'm not saying not to do all of these things. I mean, not, I don't think you should scare your kids. I just think most of you still will. But anyway, I'm not saying that you shouldn't accomplish, that you shouldn't work hard, that you shouldn't do these things. But that's not what consists of a life. That's not the thing that you say, okay, I've done that, now I'm okay. Try it. Give it a year, two years, five years, ten years, twenty, thirty I guarantee you this. Not a threat. Almost I'm trying to invite you to something better. It will collapse. And it, it collapsing is a wonderful gift. Because then you stop trying to build with your own strength. The most content people that I know are people who have faced loss and suffering. What do I do with that? There's a psychosis in the way of the world. One famous old preacher, I can't remember who it was, Keller mentioned him. Again, I'm going back to Keller now for this. 
One famous old preacher, I don't know if he was old when he said it, but it was a long time ago. Here's how you know it's a long time ago, because he said, imagine if you could take a tape recorder. A what? I brought a turntable home to uh, my house last week, and I've got to get a little phono preamp to make it work. But I asked both Aiden and Matthew if they'd seen. You don't get any money for this. They're not here anyway. They're ones downstairs. Uh, I bo- asked both Aiden and Matthew if they'd seen, and I held up a record before, and they both said, nope. Imagine you have a tape recorder. And you rec- and the tape recorder, and we can almost do this now with phones and whatever else and how we can store data. But back when this old preacher would have said it, it would have been something. And the tape recorder records everything that you ever say about other people. That's it. That's all. What's wrong with them? What they need to change? You know, what their shortcomings are. Maybe you say good things about other people too. That gets on there. But why things haven't worked out for them. Their problems of personality and character. Even helpful suggestions. You know, I think what they really need, and I'm not being mean to them when I say this, that's always the giveaway. Right? So it records everything you ever say about other people. And then he says, any kind of understanding of Judgment Day or whatever, all the Judgment Day is, is the tape recorder comes out and it's just played for you. And here's the standard. You're judged according to what you've said. What do you do then? I, I tell you sincerely, not one of you or me, not one of us in this room would stand if that's the standard. You want to work according to the way of the world? Try it. But there is a second way, a way like no other. This is the Christian gospel. Believe and see. What do I believe? I believe that God has granted to me and to everyone, and then it's up to me or others to receive, but that God has granted us perfect records in Jesus Christ, that God is present, that God is good, and that God is for us. Now it is for us to live, and I would say to discover who we truly are. This is the truth for Abraham. (coughs) Belief is the action that makes Abraham what he is. Belief is the action that makes Abraham who he is. So does Abraham pray to God? Does Abraham seek God? Does Abraham obey God? Yes, but he does none of those things to get God's acceptance. He does those things because he has God's acceptance. Now you shake your finger at people who don't do this or you don't Abraham is made who he is because he believes. Actions matter, but actions matter as a result of this belief. If you trust in a God of love for the whole world, I told you a few minutes ago, it will change the way you see every person, every news story, everything in your life. If you trust in a God of love for the whole world who has given redemption to us in Jesus Christ, everything changes. So what will you do then? Well, maybe something like not kill, not steal, not envy, love one another, 
Consider the interests of others before yourself. These are all moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but it's the same gospel. A good quote, I don't know if I have it on the screen here. Let's see, I don't. Faith, faith sees life where the world sees death. Do you understand that? I mean, watch the Academy Awards tonight. Everybody sees life. I might even enjoy a few minutes of it, but some of it's torture. But anyway, faith sees life, or faith sees life where the world sees death. But here's the other side. This is my Academy Award analogy. But faith sees death where the world sees life. It's all just glitz. Doesn't mean I can't participate, even enjoy, but I have to know it's temporary. My life is not found in these things, but in God. This is hard to accept. And I, I, even as I say this, this is what will happen in a church over and over again. And we just had to kind of go two steps forward, one step back, right? Even when we say this, it's hard to accept because fear pulls us back. We get back into the validating performance record way of understanding the world. So the question is, how do I start? Or how do I restart? How do I start again? I simply say this. And this is a question that the Holy Spirit needs to be present because if you don't believe, you can't say that you do believe. Right? But sometimes you've erected such barriers to belief in your mind, whether they're religious barriers or otherwise, that when I say the first step is simply to believe, that you would even open that as a possibility. The first step is to believe in Jesus Christ. God has sent for the life of the world. Now, do I believe? I believe. I believe. And what I see that in him, I have been granted this perfect record. And in fact, that system has been abolished. I see you differently. I see everything differently. A dangerous thing happens, though. I've got to warn you about what happens. I'm not as driven according to the systems of the world. So I give up a worldly view of success often. You have to hold that. That doesn't mean that there aren't many Christian believers who believe this way who aren't highly successful even in the eyes of the world. I'm just saying that on some level... I I sometimes imagine it with hockey players because I like hockey. Can you imagine if a hockey player, Christian or otherwise, said, well, you know, hockey's not the most important thing. Before the Stanley Cup final? Or before the Super Bowl? Right? Russell Wilson, who is a Christian and speaks of his faith strongly, Seattle Seahawks quarterback. I know he believes it. It's just, it's hard for him to say it. You know, football's not the most important thing. You give up this drive at times, at least in an earthly way. In Christ, before the foundation of the earth, he was slain. And this is the way it is now. What do you need to repent of as we finish? Oh, we'll take communion together and have lunch together. And I didn't take as long as the Academy Awards, but I took longer than I intended. I still want to teach you an English literature lesson, so that should make you all happy. What do you need to repent of? Your sin? Yes, I'm okay with that. that's pretty rudimentary in our religious understanding. You know what Scripture says you really need to repent of to know God, to, to know God in Christ? You need to repent of your righteousness. That's what's really keeping you from God. The things that you think make you acceptable. The spiritual superstar status that you might think you have. 
the gifts that you have, whatever they are. You need to repent of the things that you think make you acceptable before God. It's not just, oh, what have I done wrong? But it's, what am I trusting in before, right? It's instead of this, I put this down and say, I repent. So for me, honestly, it's this. I repent of being a pastor. Does that sound weird to you? But it's necessary. And then watch what God does for you as you accept what he has done in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Now I can be a pastor again. Now I can use the gifts I may have been granted by God. But they are never part of what makes me acceptable before him. Ever. So here's the English literature lesson as we end. It's really important, by the way. Those of you who say, well, I don't know if there are any of these, but poetry, well, that doesn't mean anything. Um, You're just wrong. Sorry. I'm going to teach you a poem from the 1600s. I've used this before in church. I think it's in your guides, so you might want to look at it there if you can't see it on the screen. George Herbert, an Anglican minister and very influential uh, poet and writer, influenced centuries of people after him, has this poem, Love Three. There is Love One and Two. It's a a trilogy. And this is the third of, of the three love poems. I was reading some analysis of this this week. And some, because uh, this is studied in, in secular universities, like it's not a necessarily always just a kind of Christian culture thing. But for George Herbert, this was a Christian expression of faith. And one of the analysis I was, I was listening to said, this is such a great poem that can, it could be even thought of in, in secular terms. And I thought, I don't know how you could do that. But anyway, are you ready? First time I'm going to read it through and stop a few times, and then I'm just going to read it through. Love bade me welcome. Now, love is Jesus Christ. You say, how do I know that? I say, look to the end of the poem. This is a dialogue, this poem, between love and George, the the poet. But look to the last verse of of the poem, and it says, Truth, Lord. That's the dialogue. Love is Jesus. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back. Do you feel the motion in here now? A dialogue. Love bade me welcome, but my soul drew back in this next beautiful line. Guilty of dust and sin. Guilty of just being creature. I'm so far from God because he's eternal and divine. And I am just dust. And sin. I've become aware of my unworthiness. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back. Guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love. Beautiful description for Jesus. Observing me grow slack. That's what some of you do in the religious life or the spiritual life. Kind of your own weight of the world, whatever it is, or your own sin. But quick-eyed love observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. In other words, Anne, are you okay? Something's on your shoulders. Sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. In other words, George is looking around going, this feast has to be prepared for somebody else because I'm not worthy of it. And love said, you shall be he. You are the guest. And George Herbert replies, I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Then this line that makes me cry. I'll try not to let it do so this time. Ah, my dear, 
I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, and now I'm teary, but I've marred them. My sin, let my shame go where it doth deserve. I've lost a page. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love. Now here's the sacrifice of Jesus who bore the blame. There's no reason for you not to accept this invitation. And then this. I'm still trying to keep a distance from God's salvation. So know you not who bore the blame? I've done away with even that which has marred your eyes. And then I say, okay then, but I'll serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. And then this beautiful line. So I did sit and eat. Let me read it to you before we close. Take communion. I say to you simply, as before I read this, will you receive Jesus Christ? This is what, it, this, is what this all is. No validating performance record on an earthly level or a heavenly level. God has given you salvation in Jesus Christ and this changes the entire way that you see everything in the world. So we take the bread, we break it, we say this is the body of Christ broken for us. See that gift? This is the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of our sins and we say you are welcome to receive if you know Jesus or even if you would like to. Let me read this and then we'll take the communion. Love bade me welcome yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love observing me grow slack from my first entrance in drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I? The unkind, ungrateful? Oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Heavenly Father, may we know what it means, each of us in this place, to believe and to receive Jesus Christ, our Lord. We know that this is where our salvation lies. We ask that you would help us to see and live from this. We pray uh, if there are barriers to this in our lives, that you would show us what those are. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would call us all to this faith in Jesus Christ. We take the communion now, Lord Jesus Christ, because of what you have done for us. This is our declaration of faith in you. We pray in your name. Amen. Ushers may come forward.